Alright everybody, welcome to Thursday of week three, though it's of course not Thursday, it's uh, Wednesday and day 34 on this quarantine self kind of now firmly in the second month. I hope everybody's staying sane, healthy, and uh, I don't know, optimistic. I'm trying to do all those, I feel like I'm, I'm definitely healthy. Uh, and I would say I'm relatively sane, my optimism kind of comes in and out. Uh, today's a great day though, segueing to have optimism because the topic for today, gerrymandering, is a, it's a very, like it's a very now topic in political reform, probably of all the things that we're gonna discuss, uh, except for the Portland City Charter uh, review, which is also a, a real thing that's, that's here. Uh, it is probably the most present issue in political reform and the most likely to see some movement in the next year to decade. Uh, so, to, uh, one thing I want to say is that uh, I am supposed to have a guest lecture presentation and I'm still waiting on that as I'm recording this, but this is going to be probably a shorter than uh, typical lecture because I also am going to have a guest lecture presentation. That may arrive later than our Thursday schedule. I've really been trying to keep on top of this so that the uh, recorded classes land when we actually would be in class or before then, but that's not always possible. Um, I'll include, of course, an announcement when, when that is ready. Uh, gerrymandering is a very now political reform issue, uh, not because it's new, not because it's worse than ever, uh, not because uh, the avenues for achieving this reform are any more available than they ever were, uh, it's just that there's a greater level of awareness of the problems that gerrymandering brings, uh, not just the unfairness of it, but the actual political problems that it brings, uh, and so it has come to the forefront of our popular consciousness. And this is the first time I've mentioned this as a factor in political reform movements, uh, but it really is an important one, that uh, things don't get across the finish line, they don't even get into the race, unless there's already uh, a fertile ground in the political culture for uh, that kind of political reform. There has to be there has to be a relatively popular. It doesn't have to be majority, but it has to be a relatively popular appetite for a particular kind of reform. Um, the last time we really had uh, a big appetite for some kind of political reform that swept through a lot of states was in the early '90s, uh, and that was uh, when term limits were the hot thing. Uh, and it wasn't as though the idea of term limits was new. So the presidential term limit had, was a half a century old at that point. The idea of term limits had been uh, uh, you know, contemplated for a century. Uh, it was just that there was a growing sense in the 80s that uh, long-time serving elected officials were less interested in getting stuff done and more interested in just being long-serving and continuing to get reelected. Um, I, I really can't, that was at the beginning of my teaching career, and I really can't trace exactly what it was in the popular culture that kind of led to this appetite for term limits. Um, and I will say that the, the, the appetite for term limits came and went relatively quickly, within about a half a decade. A lot of states, including uh, Oregon, passed term limit uh, um, either statutes or uh, ballot measures, uh, many of which, including Oregon's, were later overturned by the courts for various constitutional violations. In the case of Oregon, it was because uh, the ballot measure violated, ultimately the, the uh, Oregon Supreme Court determined that the ballot measure uh, violated the single issue uh, uh, requirement. And interestingly, that by the time the court struck that down, 
Uh, and it was, there was an easy fix for that, right? There's just put up two ballot measures uh, because the original ballot measure limited the terms of both federal and state uh, officials and the court said, well, that's two different pieces of our political system. You have to have separate ballot measures for that. Uh, by the time the court ruled that, there was an easy fix, but the appetite for term limits was already passed. And part of the reason for that was that it turned out that when term limits were put into place, it didn't necessarily fix the problem. Uh, and it brought with it new problems. For example, the uh, fact that when you have people who are term limited out of legislative positions, their institutional memory, their developed policy expertise, and all of the relationships that they have cultivated during uh, their time in the legislature are essentially lost. And there's a kind of a, uh, you know, an ongoing freshman problem. Um, and that's not necessarily horrible. Um, because it's a good thing maybe to have fresh ideas and also even to have inexperienced people who they're the, uh, you know, like the ideas they have to learn quickly. Um, but it does mean that policy expertise wasn't held in legislators. It was held somewhere. And uh, that particular political reform resulted in a shift in where the expertise went. The shift went towards staff. Uh, because staff didn't get term limited out. And if you were an expert in a particular pol policy area, if your uh, legislator that you work for gets term limited out and goes away, you're still going to be able to get a job with whoever's coming in. In fact, you're going to be even more needed. So one of the interesting things about that was that the, it resulted in, a, in not greater popular democracy, which was the idea behind term limits. We want fresh blood. We want more people to have a chance. We want uh, there to not be this sort of stasis of incumbents just taking up these seats decade after decade. Um, what that did was that introduced a sort of technocratic shift in, a, in the state legislatures that uh, had this and that, that continue to have term limits because they, they weren't struck down uh, for the same reason in every state. Um, a lot of states still have term limits. Not a lot. A few states still have term limits. But this is just a kind of a lesson about two things. I bring it up because uh, it's a lesson about the political moment and the appetite for a reform that comes out of our political culture. There's no shortage of ideas for political reform in the literature. There's no shortage of ideas for political reform among uh, dedicated uh, political reformers. What there is is there's a shortage of appetite for a set of political reforms or, or, or a, a large set of political reforms. We basically get these kind of waves. Um, and gerrymandering is probably the, I mean, it's not probably, it's the one that there's an appetite for. There's more than an appetite for it. There's actually uh, an outright desire for it. Um, the other lesson from the term limit thing is that the, there are often unintended consequences uh, of political reforms. In the case of term limits, it was a shift, a technocratic shift away from elected officials having policy expertise and towards uh, staffers, unelected staffers having more policy expertise. And so the newer elected officials relied more on staff. Now, that might actually, even though it was an unintended consequence, that's not what the reformers were going for, that might actually be a beneficial thing. Because what we get is we get elected officials who are responsive to the people, and they uh, essentially have a short amount of time, a relatively short amount of time, several terms, in order to get stuff done. So they're incentivized to work really hard to get things across the finish line. Um, but they don't have policy expertise, which means they have to rely on experts instead of on their own selves and on their own political instincts. And introducing a higher level of unelected expertise into the policymaking process could be a really beneficial thing. Um, especially if at a certain point, elected officials aren't just thinking, well, I need to get reelected, I'm gonna try to get reelected, so I'm gonna just pay attention to what my constituents want. 
as you either get into your last term or close to your last term, uh, you're going to be thinking, well, I want to get stuff done. And that means that you're going to be turning more towards uh, policy experts, uh, the unelected staffers, to generate these ideas. And it's going to provide an incentive for you to actually get policies across the finish line before you get term limited out. So that one thing, I think the sort of fresh blood and the incentive to get things done quickly instead of just take 20 years to get anything done, that was intended. The technocratic shift was unintended. Uh, each subsequent uh, wave of reform has the potential to learn from previous waves as to paying attention to unintended consequences and paying attention to the fact that when you make a fundamental change to our political system, it's sometimes going to result in things that you might not think were a problem before. Uh, that, uh, and then in retrospect, you say, oh, well, yeah, it's, we actually do have a better system. Or, oops, we actually made it worse. Um, with the movement for gerrymandering, there's definitely a concern that uh, by taking the redistricting process out of the hands of the elected officials who themselves are subject to the math, and I'll talk a little bit more in a minute about what redistricting is and why it exists, um, there's definitely concern to make sure that the new system doesn't either duplicate the problems of the old system or introduce new problems that are going to make uh, our political system either worse or just as bad as before, uh, but only, only in different ways. Now, of course, it's always unpredictable uh, what a particular reform is going to do, um, though at this point, because this one is happening sort of slowly, there are already a few states that have put into place independent redistricting commissions to uh, avoid the problem of partisan gerrymandering, and it's turning out that the, you know, the research shows that it's generating a greater uh, number of competitive seats, and when you have more competitive seats, you tend to have more moderate, pragmatic legislators who are more likely to try to work with people uh, who have different viewpoints from, from their own, because that's how they have to get elected, uh, is by you know, representing not just their hardcore base, uh, not their safe district of uh, either Republicans or Democrats who want them to stay true to their principles, but to people that actually want problems solved. Um, <clears throat> okay, I feel like I'm getting a little ahead of myself on what it is that we're talking about here, so I'm gonna step back. Notice the totally empty board, the piece of chalk. I'm not really sure how I'm going to fill this board today. I don't have a particular diagram in mind, and that is actually kind of potentially dangerous that this could look really ugly. Um, let me just try to be systematic. What is redistricting and why do we have it? Um, redistricting is a necessity only in a territory-based winner-take-all system. So if we have redistricting, oops, sorry, uh, territorial, whoops, territorial representation requires an electoral map. And the basic principle of a democratic system of equal political rights, which means, uh, among other things, each person's vote should count roughly the same, means that the electoral map needs to be drawn in a way that each representative represents the same number of constituents. So equal constituency size. That actually, that principle is the subject of a later uh, um, uh, topic in this course, the Supreme Court ruling in Baker versus Carr, which actually 
made the one person, one vote rule, the equal constituency size rule, uh, a, a constitutional requirement for all states. Before that, it wasn't. Uh, you would think, well, how is that possible that political equality wasn't fundamentally built into the way that redistricting was carried out? We'll, we'll see why that was uh, and also what the challenges were in, in making that what seems to be, especially in retrospect, extraordinarily sensible change. But we have this now, and what that means is that when we have an electoral map and people move and certain areas grow faster than others, and other areas possibly even shrink uh, in population size, that in order to maintain equal constituency size, there has to be a uh, reapportionment, redistricting process, and that's based on the census. Okay? So what you need is, to have this, you need a census, and then you need reapportionment or redistricting to maintain or to reestablish equality. So there's, there's a little map that makes a U-turn right into there. If we don't start with a territorial representative system, then the rest of this doesn't happen. And I mentioned this last time when I was talking about uh, imagining a uh, proportionally elected uh, Oregon legislature. If we have a unicameral legislature that is elected proportionally, there's no map. So one way to solve the problem of redistricting is to get rid of territorial representation and put into place an alternative, and really the only major alternative, uh, the only sensible alternative is proportional representation. Um, why is redistricting problematic uh, at all? Why do, we, why, why do we need to tackle this as a political reform issue? What's wrong uh, with the system as it exists so that we need to get a different system? Gerrymandering is one of the problems, and gerrymandering is the intentional drawing of district lines to create safe seats. So that's what gerrymandering is. Probably you all knew that already, but I'll put it on the board. Equals uh, intentionally creating safe seats. And there are two basic ways to achieve this. And gerrymandering has always been possible, um, and with better uh, information and better uh, demographic modeling, um, and uh, kind of 21st century sophisticated computer tools, it's become easier than ever uh, to, to do the two things that have always been part of what gerrymandering was. It was just done with less sophistication and less data behind it, but still pretty successfully. Um, you create safe seats through two, through two processes. There's called, it's packing and cracking. By packing, what you do is you take your opposition parties supporters and you pack them in to uh, districts, to as few districts as possible. And the ideal would be, let's say that um, you, know, you have uh, a million Democrats in your state and you need to, uh, and uh, you're doing congressional districting, which is uh, districts of about 500,000, excuse me, of about uh, 700,000 to 800,000 uh, people. Um, ideally, you take those million people and those, excuse me, those million Democrats, and you pack them into as few districts as possible. Now, it's too many to put in one district, so 
you try to put them all in two. And when you pack, what you get is you get a very strong safe seat for the opposition. But the stronger the safe seat, the fewer of them that you actually uh, create. Cracking does the opposite thing. It takes your opposition and it puts them, it breaks up, it cracks their support and breaks them up into tiny small pieces and puts them in a lot of different districts that are going to then be safer for your side, right? So packing means you're gonna create a, a few safe seats for the other side. And cracking is gonna mean that you're going to distribute the opposition widely. Now, both of these techniques can be used in a given state, uh, um, and in fact, both of them will be used because people aren't necessarily distributed in a way that allows you to do either one or the other. Now, what is it that you're really trying to do with your packing and cracking and, and with your gerrymandering? Uh, a safe seat is a seat that uh, should be no problem for your party to win given the makeup of the electorate, no matter what the issue is, no matter how uh, much the opposition persuades uh, the uh, independent voters, and no matter how much the opposition motivates its turnout. And one of the ways that uh, that is measured is with a partisan ranking. Um, and the partisan ranking is usually done in a plus-minus uh, way based on uh, uh, the simplest model is based on the previous presidential election. So, if, for example, in a particular district, so we're going to do a political, or we're going to do a partisan rating. If in the last election, and actually it doesn't have to be presidential, uh, let's say that the, we, the last one we have is gubernatorial, that the Democrat and the Republican running in a particular district. If the Democrat got 65% of the vote and the Republican got 35% of the vote, this is a plus 30 Democratic district. From the Republican point of view, it's a minus 30, right? Um, that's an extraordinarily safe district because even though some of those people who voted for the Democratic candidate are independent voters who chose that particular person at this particular time for whatever reasons, um, this is a big enough victory that we know this is a very safe seat. Now, you can go around and you can, you can rank all the districts, and then what you can then also do is you can rate all of the precincts in the entire state so that you know what the rough political ranking is, and that way you can group precincts uh, by either packing a lot of them together, drawing lines, like, oh, here's, here's a bunch of plus 30 or plus 40, uh, plus 50, right? How do you get a plus 50? Uh, what is that, like 30 and 70 percent, 25 and 75 percent. That's, that's not uncommon in American elections for a precinct to go 75 percent to the uh, Democrat or the Republican, 25 percent to the other. So if you have a plus 50 precinct and you put that together with a bunch of other plus 40 and plus 50 uh, precincts, you're, you're doing a lot of packing. And so you can say, well, here they are, and there's a, you can just have a density map, and then you can get a computer to draw a line around as many of those as possible. And what you're shooting for, and here's the, here's the art of gerrymandering, is you're creating, intentionally creating safe seats for both sides. You cannot generate safe seats for your own side without generating safe seats for the other side. You could 
hope that the population is distributed in a way where you can just crack all of their supporters into a bunch of districts where they're complete losers. And that's a theoretical possibility, but it's in practice, it's very difficult to make that happen the way that people are actually distributed in the real world. Um, so the idea though is, oh, let's let us pack and crack in combination and create some safe seats for the opposition, but a lot fewer safe seats for them than for our side. Um, the idea of packing specifically, what you want to do is you want the partisan rating of your opponent's safe seats to be really high. And then you want the partisan rating of your safe seats to be, to be within a safe margin, but to be less high, right? And so imagine, just imagine that we have a state where we have 40% Democrats, 40% Republicans, and 20% persuadable voters. Um, what you really want to do as, let's say you're the Republican Party in charge of redistributing this particular state, and we have 10 seats, and we have that distribution, you're going to have to create probably two safe seats for the Democratic Party. And ideally, you're going to take those 40% of Democrats, and you're going to put all of them into two plus 50 or even plus 55 uh, districts, and you're giving them that. Right? So part of what you're doing with gerrymandering is you're actually giving your uh, opposed party some safe seats. And then you're going to try to create, by cracking up the rest and by distributing your own voters in the smartest possible way, you're going to create uh, as many safe districts as you can for your side. And in this scenario, you can probably do about six, maybe five, maybe six. So two safe districts on the other side, let's call it six on our side, and then that's going to be two competitive districts. It's usually impossible unless the population is distributed just right uh, and there's a you know pretty strong partisan base in, in the state on both sides. It's usually going to be hard to create nothing but safe seats. There are going to be some competitive seats. The real art of gerrymandering is not creating safe seats for your own party and not for the other party. The real art is creating actually the fewest possible competitive seats and the biggest gap in safe seats for your party. So in this scenario, we have 10 seats. If, I can, if the Republicans can get two safe Democratic seats and six safe Republican seats, that's a plus four, right? That means that there's an automatic four seat advantage. And then this is a state where there's an even uh, representat representation of partisan support, 40% and 40%. And there's a decent sized, though not extraordinarily large, uh, set of moderate swing voters. Um, Possibly you can only get five safe seats for the Republican Party, and so you get a plus three. Um, it, it's, but what you want is you want the fewest competitive seats. A couple of reasons. One, obviously safe seats are better because you can count on them, and that builds you towards a majority much more quickly. But uh, safe seats are not just good because they give you a D or an R in, this, in, in that seat and you don't have to worry about it. They're good because they cost you almost no resources to hold on to. And part of the reason why gerrymandering is aimed towards re really ultimately reducing the number of competitive seats is that what that means is the fewer competitive seats there are, the parties can focus their financial and uh, activist energy resources uh, on a fewer number of competitive seats. And both parties have an interest in doing that. Um, so one of the things about gerrymandering is it tends to sound like it is a, a one party, a party-sided thing. A partisan gerrymander 
could be that one party controls the uh, the legislature and has the governor to sign the, uh, the redistricting bill into law. And that side is going to use it to create a lopsided, as big of a plus uh, as they possibly can. Six Republican seats, two Democratic seats, two competitive seats. That's a plus four for the Republicans in a state that is evenly divided. That's a win. Um, but there's also bipartisan gerrymandering um, because... And gerrymandering is really just creating safe seats. And since you, even under a, uh, a, uni, uh, a one-party uh, gerrymander, it's going to be you're going to create safe seats for both sides. A bipartisan gerrymander is where the two parties, let's say that the governor is a Democrat and uh, the House of Representatives is in Republican hands and the Senate is in Democratic hands. We really have a pretty divided uh, government at the state level. And th this is still relatively common. It's way more common. Uh, um, it, it was way more common in the past to have this kind of divided government. But imagine that we have that situation. Um, the Democrats and the Republicans still have an interest in creating the biggest number of safe seats overall and reducing the number of competitive seats because what they want to do is they want to focus their resources on those competitive, uh, fewer competitive seats. And ideally also, if at the state level, there's only a small handful of competitive state legislative seats for both sides to compete for. That means they can also then use those resources for uh, running uh, people for governor, running people for city councils and county commissioners. You can spread your resources around. So a bipartisan gerrymander is also a thing. And what a bipartisan gerrymander is, is it's a negotiated gerrymander where the number of safe seats is still maximized. But in a, in, a, in a bipartisan gerrymander, the negotiation is going to be to uh, either reduce as much as possible or eliminate the partisan gap. So if we had 10 seats um, and uh, the Republicans are in charge, they're going to shoot for a 6-2 uh, split with two competitive seats, and that's a plus four for them. If Democrats are in charge, they're going to try to do the same thing. Um, and uh, you're going to get a plus four on either side, depending on who controls the state's government. If they don't control it, uh, excuse me, if neither side controls uh, the entire state government, then uh, what you're going to probably get is a negotiated bipartisan gerrymander where both sides get four safe seats. Uh, and so there's no partisan advantage. Uh, and the, the safe seats are going to look, they're all going to have roughly the same partisan ranking. You're going to get a bunch of plus 20 Democratic seats, a bunch of plus 20 Republican seats, and then you're going to get some toss-ups that they're both competing for. But it's not unrealistic with the same map and the same distribution of population to get six Republicans and two Democrats and two competitive seats, or four Republican and four Democratic safe seats and two competitive seats. Um, it's even possible to get like four and a half safe seats for each side. In other words, four definite safe seats and then the two competitive seats are only marginally competitive, right? They're, they are, uh, they lean heavily in one direction or the other. So essentially, you have five and five, and you're gonna end up with a split situation. Again, why? Not because that serves constituents, not because it's democratic, uh, but because it preserves resources. Um, a really, a perfect bipartisan gerrymander would have five safe seats for the Democrats and five safe, safe seats for the Republicans. Why would they want to do that? To preserve resources. Now, it's probably not going to come down to that. It's probably going to come down to, in reality, again, it's, it's really hard to get a full map full of safe seats. There are going to be competitive seats. 
But the idea is we're creating safe seats for both sides and minimizing competitive seats. That's the real outcome of gerrymandering. And redistricting itself is uh, ripe for gerrymandering of either the one-party slanted side, and we've seen that in certain states, we've seen it in Wisconsin, we've seen it in Maryland for the Democrats, Oregon has a slight, I would say, a slight version of it with Democratic control. Um, and then we've, there are states where there's a bipartisan gerrymander, where neither party controls the governorship in both houses of the legislature, where there are a tremendous amount of safe seats. The, the, the problem with gerrymandering is not just that it can give one party an advantage over the other. In Wisconsin, the Republican Party won far less than 50% of the votes in legislative elections in 2018, and yet won about 60% of the state legislative seats. So there's a huge disparity between uh, the, uh, the vote total and the number of representatives from the Republican Party. That is, that is why uh, gerrymandering is forefront of the popular consciousness, because that kind of thing is happening and it's showing that there is a real disconnect, that the idea of an equal constituency size is not enough to actually make sure that everybody's vote counts the same. Because when you have 45% of votes in the Wisconsin state elections going to Republicans and 60% of the state legislature being Republicans, then you can easily make the claim that Democrats are having their votes watered down, that they, they don't have uh, equal political rights. So you're definitely gonna make that, that claim that equality, political equality is violated is, most, is easiest to make when uh, you have a clear partisan gerrymander. But uh, bipartisan gerrymandering, uh, while it doesn't do that same thing, it actually makes a lot of people's votes not matter at all. If you create eight safe seats out of 10, four for the Republicans and four for the Democrats, um, the votes of the people in all eight of those districts are essentially wasted votes. And so uh, the only people whose votes really matter and who will decide the balance of power uh, at each election are the people who live in those two districts. So much like swing states in the presidential election are the only ones that really matter, you know, Florida and Virginia and Ohio, uh, these are the states that really matter. The rest of us in Oregon, like, you know, our votes are going to go to the Democratic Party. We don't really matter. Our votes are unimportant. We're essentially disenfranchised from the selection of the president. Uh, even a, any form of gerrymandering is going to disenfranchise an awful lot of voters in various kinds of districts. So uh, that the, the claim is that it actually undermines Democratic competitiveness. A secondary claim is that it gives a disproportionate advantage to a particular party if you can get a partisan gerrymander. And that's the one that raises the appetite in, in the, pu the public for uh, anti-gerrymandering reform. But the real reason to change the redistricting process is not just to avoid uh, things that, are like th that happen in places like Wisconsin and Maryland where one side essentially gets a systematic advantage that even if they get fewer votes than the other side, they still maintain a strong majority. That is definitely a target. But the bigger target is lack of political competitiveness. That's the underlying reason to get rid of 
um, uh, part of, to get rid of the redistricting process as it exists. Right now, I'm going to do a little racing here. I'm going to step aside first, so I can do. You can have this, have the whole board, and I'll do a screenshot. Um, how does our system lead from territorial representation to gerrymandering? Okay. Well, I have to continue this diagram. Territorial representation requires an electoral map, which we need the census to tell us when we have to redo it. How does this get done? Right? This is the real question mark. The traditional model is that it's done by the state legislature. And when the state legislature is doing this, essentially what the state legislature is doing is setting the map for the elections that the members of the state legislature themselves will have to compete in in the future. And these are political, these are elected officials. Elected officials are people who have to run for re-election all the time. They have to raise money. They have to kiss babies and shake hands. They have to do outreach. They have to do all the stuff that's obnoxious about keeping your job. Um, in a competitive seat, you have to do more of that. In a safe seat, you have to do less of that. And one of the things that's actually kind of interesting is that when you have a safe seat, you spend less money, excuse me, you spend less time raising money. You spend less time uh, doing rallies. You spend less time out among, the, among your constituents. You, that could, and often does, disconnect you from your constituency because you don't have to keep going back to them to figure out what they want from their elected officials and give it to them or give them enough of it that they'll reelect you. You can spend less time with your constituency. Two sides to that. One, that disconnects you. That's the bad side. But two, that means you can spend more time on policymaking. You can spend more time working with other legislators to, to negotiate uh, bills, introduce amendments, learn uh, policy, uh, get expert testimony, do all of the hard labor of actually moving policy across the finish line. The less time you have to spend on getting reelected, the more time you can spend on uh, policy. And Doing policy is the reason why most people get elected. Most elected officials don't love campaigning and hate governing, right? They endure campaigning as the necessary evil in a democratic system in order to be able to govern, in order to be able to have a hand in policy outcomes. Now, I won't say that there aren't some uh, elected officials who, don't, who, who aren't really good at campaigning and who don't really dig it. And I would say one of the interesting things about Donald Trump as, as a president and as a, a, an uncommon American politician is that he clearly enjoys running more than he enjoys governing. Um, but Trump is really, he, he's really the, the, the uh, exception in American politics, but not the only one. There are plenty of people who just love to run and winning is the thing and governing is annoying and, and messy and tedious. But most people who go into politics, particularly at the state level, are there to do something. They're there to solve problems for their community. They're there because they think they have ideas for how to make the world a better place. They want to do policy reform of other types besides political reform. They want to do healthcare reform. They want to do education reform. They want to do tax reform. They want to do environmental reform. They want to do something. To spend less time on getting elected is a nice thing, right? Uh, imagine that you have children and you have to, uh, you know, have them taken care of because you go to work, right? Maybe, you know, right now, if you're one of those people who actually does have to leave their house to go to work and your kids are home from school, that's a, that's a necessary evil, getting them taken care of. 
Um, if you could design a system that would make that easier to do, then you would do it, right? If you could get family members to move to town and take care, you know, grandparents ideally, to take care of your kids while you're out at work, you can work for free. If you have to pay for childcare, if you have to put your kids in a preschool program, or if you have to hire somebody, a babysitter or a nanny, uh, or some kind of caregiver to come to your home, essentially what you're doing is you're spending money to be able to make money, and that sucks, right? Wouldn't you like to create a system where you could uh, make money without having to spend money? It's the same thing with elected officials. They wanna be able to continue getting to govern, to make policy, without having to spend very much money on uh, campaigning. And then of course, that's in the individual level, as I've t spoken earlier, at the party level, parties want to conserve their resources. Um, so they want to have as few competitive seats as possible and as many safe seats as possible. So when the state legislature is doing this uh, job, the, doing the job of, of creating the new map, they're creating their own competitive landscape. And it would be really it would go against basic human psychology for them to want to make that landscape harder for themselves. That's like saying, it's like imagine, imagine you have grandparents, you have, your parents live in town and they're wonderful people and they're willing to babysit for your kids while you go work or they're willing to just hang out with your kids, you take, take them all day um, and you're not worried that it's because your parents are crazy people who are gonna make your kids, you, you know that's gonna be great. You know it's gonna be a good relationship. Um, why would you not do that? Why would you say, nah, you know, I would really rather pay a nanny because paying for childcare is what? It's, it's, it's just not smart, right? Asking for more competitive seats rather than fewer competitive seats from, the, from, from elected officials is like saying, nah, you know, I don't want the grandparents. I'd rather pay for something that I could get at a high level of quality for free. It's just, it's, it's asinine. And uh, it's no surprise given that this is the traditional method for, for drawing the map that we're gonna end up with a system of either partisan gerrymandering or bipartisan gerrymandering. Either way, it's totally in their interest. Why does the state legislature do this job? Well, the map is essential for a healthy democracy. And we have to redistrict every 10 years because the census shows us that population sizes move around. And if we didn't redistrict, then there would be unequal sizes of districts would, would, would happen all the time. That's definitely in a fast-growing place like the Portland metropolitan area, if we don't redistrict in 2020 or 2021, uh, then some of the districts around here are gonna be way bigger than others because population movement is not being evenly distributed uh, around this area. And some, some districts, in fact, that used to be pretty rural, that were big because they, they had few people in them, now have a ton of people because they were mostly rural and had a little slice of suburbia, and those suburban neighborhoods are now actually overflowing with city development. So it's necessary. And since you have to do it, who's going to do it? Right? Well, the traditional answer was the state legislatures. Um, and mostly because, well, who else is going to do it? Right? Uh, it is a matter of state law, what the electoral map looks like, and state law is written by state legislators. Um, there are a number of ways in which elected officials in, the, in, in not just our democratic system, but in any democratic system, actually are self-regulating, right? Um, both uh, the House and the Senate at the federal level and as well as at all the state levels, those bodies, they set their own rules of procedure. 
Uh, instead of giving that over to either the, the Constitution writers, uh, who d decided not to do that because it's too detailed what the parliamentary rules are going to be, or giving it over to some external entity, it's given over to the elected officials themselves. So, the traditional model is self-regulation. And while we can easily point out how skewed that would be, and how asinine it would be for people who are self-regulating to self-regulate in a way that is harder for themselves, the reason for that choice is that ultimately the elected officials are uh, subject to the elections of people frequently, the population frequently, and if they self-regulate in a way that the people don't like, then the people can vote them out. Right? And that's actually one of the ways that ethics reforms happen uh, at the state and the, particularly at the federal level, is that uh, Congress starts seeming like it's getting corrupt, there's a bunch of scandals, uh, it seems like uh, the rules that have been in place really aren't doing much to restrain the behavior of, of people who are in Congress, and the uh, American people see this and they start to rumble and they start to feel as though there needs to be a reform to the self-regulation of these bodies, stronger ethics reforms, bigger barriers between uh, lobbyists and uh, um, legislators, uh, less power to certain, in, in, in certain uh, uh, committees, and that generates an appetite for reform, and candidates, challengers, will start to run on a platform of uh, ethics reform. That is, in fact, the, the basic uh, platform of the Republican Party in 1994, uh, which was the first big wave election uh, of our lifetime, of my lifetime, I guess it's probably before a lot of your lifetimes, but 1994 was the first wave election in 40 years. The last time the Republican Party had control of the House and the Senate was in 1954, um, excuse me, 1952, uh, and they lost it in 1954. And the, a big part of how the Republican Party won that wave election in 1984 was they, they attacked Bill Clinton, they attacked uh, his, his whole approach, but they also came with an ethics uh, and process reform platform. The contract with America was their legislative uh, uh, agenda, and about three quarters of it was internal self-regulation. And so there was a, they saw an opportunity. The American people were uh, weary of the old guard, and uh, the Republicans, led by Newt Gingrich, who, who cooked this whole thing up, saw that a reform platform was a way to win an election. And so the way in which Congress self-regulated transformed in a pretty major way after the 1994 uh, 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 Republican uh, victory in that set of midterm elections. Um, so self-regulation itself is always subject to external democratic uh, pressure. In this particular area, that normal dynamic, the way that, that uh, um, politicians regulate themselves, campaign finance, ethics rules, procedures, and parliamentary uh, um, uh, uh, methods, all of those are subject to external pressure. It takes a lot of, it takes a strong public appetite for reform to get legislators to re-self-regulate, but it can, the pressure can come from the outside. The problem with the redistricting form of self-regulation is that when you're in control of the electoral map and people don't like that you're in control of the electoral map, they can't necessarily punish you for not changing the map, right? Um, in Wisconsin, if, uh, if not uh, just Democrats, but moderates don't like the fact that the Republican Party has such a lock on the state legislature there because they've engaged in this really very successful uh, 
partisan gerrymander, then those voters can get angry and they can uh, uh, vote in primaries for challenging candidates who's, who are going to vow to get rid of, either get rid of this or to draw a map that's more fair, but you're not on a level playing field and so that public appetite for reform can get watered down. This is the biggest area where Democrat, external democratic pressure is less likely to have an impact on self-regulation than in, other, any, in any other area. Um, <clears throat> if the public doesn't like uh, um, uh, unlimited terms, they don't like people serving the legislature for 20 and 30 years, they can, as I said with the wave of term limit uh, um, reform, they can generate a public appetite and challengers are going to run for office who are going to propose this political reform. And if the current office holders ignore that public appetite for reform, they do so at their own peril. Democracy itself, the electoral system, can be a check on the self-regulation that is really in a lot of places in our political system. Um, so the, the democratic system is essentially, it's self-regulating in a lot of ways, it's also self-correcting in the sense that if something that's being done, if elected officials are setting rules for themselves that are uh, unpalatable to the people, the people can vote them out. In this particular area, voting out the people you don't like and the structure you don't like is particularly problematic. Right? In Oregon, we have a supermajority of Democrats in uh, the legislature in uh, um, Salem. If Oregonians don't like the fact that uh, the state legislature controls redistricting, it's going to be very challenging and potentially, I mean, really kind of impossible to get a bunch of reform-minded people elected. Because how are they going to get elected? Well, they're not going to get elected through the Democratic Party, probably, and they're not going to win in challenge, uh, uh, challenge situations because there's just too many safe seats for Democrats. So there's an impenetrability there. That's, and that's true in Wisconsin as well. Uh, it's true wherever you have a strong partisan gerrymander. Um, if there's a bipartisan gerrymander, um, th th which I talked about, th and there's a strong appetite in that state for uh, getting rid of this form of self-regulation for something else, I haven't yet filled out what the other model is, um, but I will in a minute, uh, then it's possible. But part of the problem with, with that is that if there's a bipartisan gerrymander, it doesn't raise public awareness that there's a problem, right? People aren't going, oh yeah, you know, we have 90 seats in our state legislature and only 10 of them are competitive. That doesn't seem very good. As, as long as those 80 seats that are safe are distributed roughly evenly or about proportional to what the state's partisan makeup looks like, then people aren't gonna have such a problem with it. It's not gonna generate outrage. Safe seats do, by itself doesn't generate outrage. It's the partisan gerrymander where the, the number of safe seats is skewed that tends to generate the outrage. So since uh, the public appetite for reform is such an important factor in getting a reform across the finish line, even getting a reform you know, moving in the first place, then uh, it's only in these extreme places where there's a partisan gerrymander that uh, is where there's going to be a public appetite, but that's the place where it's precisely the least likely to happen because with that strong of a gerrymander, the elected officials are largely immune from popular opinion. Right? They're not immune from challenges within their own hardcore base, but people who are hardcore base for one part or the other, they don't necessarily want the system to change. Right? If you're a hardcore Democrat, you, you, you like 
uh, a lot of Democratic safe seats. If you're a hardcore Republican, you like a lot of hardcore Republican safe seats, even though you might acknowledge at some, in some corner of your conscience that that's undemocratic in a certain way because it wastes a lot of people's votes and it means a lot of people are disenfranchised and a giant chunk of districts really, it doesn't matter uh, who, what, what people want, they're gonna get a D or they're gonna get an R. Um, if, you're in a, if you're in the base of a party, that even if that bugs you, it's not going to bug you as enough, or at least for a, a large number of people aren't going to be bugged enough so that they actually turn against uh, the partisan gerrymander. So uh, it's very difficult to get this going. Now, what this means is that the statutory avenue of, of getting rid of this, getting the state legislators to re-regulate themselves from the inside, is probably not... Uh, the avenue that is going to occur. But there is an alternative in roughly half the states, and Oregon happens to be one of those, and the new model, okay, the reform model, is that you create an independent districting commission. You take out of the hands of the people who are going to have to run in this map, the drawing of the map. It's extraordinarily sensible. Um, how do you get this? Well, you get this through direct democracy. And in the states where electoral law is available through direct democracy, and that's a, a state where there's any form of any form of initiative and referendum, then this is available to you. If you're if you live in a state that doesn't have the initiative and referendum, this isn't available you need to get the state legislature itself to re-self-regulate in a way that makes it less likely that there's gonna be either a partisan or a bipartisan gerrymander, and that's going to be a challenging thing. The stat, that's one, that's the statutory uh, avenue, which is always harder than direct democratic avenue. Two, that's asking uh, for elected officials to change the rules, not of a policy out in the world that barely affects them except their families, but affects them directly. Right? You need to rewrite the rules of the system that you're winning in already. That takes a lot of public pressure to get people to do, and it's really it's a very high threshold. Now, um, you're probably thinking, and I hope you're thinking, that, well, Jack, what about the judicial avenue? Right? Can't, this be, can't gerrymandering be challenged on constitutional grounds? Um, and the answer is, yes, it can be. It's available. It's one of those policy reforms that's available. Unlike term limits, where you can't really, there's no, there's no way to challenge unlimited terms on constitutional grounds, so the judicial avenue is not available if you like term limits. It is available here, though, and there is a principle, right, political equality, uh, one person, one vote, that either the partisan or the bipartisan gerrymander uh, seems to violate. Uh, the problem with that is that... Uh, the judiciary has proven reluctant to adopt a principle or standard of jurisprudence that would enable courts to tell when a map is a result of a gerrymander and when a map is a result of a uh, you know, good faith attempt to draw sensible district lines and it just so happens that one party gets safer seats more than the other one. Um, part of the reason why the judiciary is reluctant to do that is that measuring gerrymandering 
is possible by political scientists. And there's, uh, it, it, there's, a, there's, a, pretty, there's a couple different models, but the, the models all center around what are called wasted votes, right? Um, if uh, packing creates a lot of wasted votes, so somebody wins their district always with 40%, uh, then all of those extra votes were wasted. If, that, if those extra votes were wasted intentionally, that's a gerrymander. The problem is, from the point of view of every election, every vote above the one vote you need to get more votes than everyone else running is a wasted vote, right? If, uh, if there's two candidates running and I get 51% of the vote and my opponent gets 49% of the vote, I've wasted virtually no votes. If I get 60% of the, of the vote and my opponent gets 40, I've wasted a lot of votes. I got a lot of votes I didn't need, right? So under, and that's normal, right? That's not, that's not even the result. Maybe I just ran a better race. Uh, I, I did more to persuade. I had a better operation. All the stuff that gets you to have a 60-40 victory could be a result of gerrymandering, which would waste all those votes intentionally, or it could just be a result of the fact that I'm a better candidate, or I came along at the right time, it was a wave election for my party, uh, the, uh, my opponent was in a party that was unpopular for whatever actions it had taken during the last two years. Those votes are wasted now for the normal reason. So the, the, the difficulty of the judicial avenue is that, and the Supreme Court is ultimately the one that would have decided, is there a standard? The lower courts have you know, adopted various models developed by political scientists to measure wasted votes. Um, and to, to set a standard and say, well, once, once the wasted votes go above this threshold, that's an abnormal and clearly intentional wasting of votes. The problem is, is that wasted votes are both a result of gerrymandering and a result of normal politics. The Supreme Court has, at this point, proven unwilling to adopt a standard for adjudicating cases like the Wisconsin case and the Maryland case that recently came, came through the court, and I think maybe North Carolina had one as well, I'm not 100% sure, um, they were unwilling to adopt a standard that would allow us to look at Wisconsin and not just casually, anecdotally say, well, Jesus Christ, that is a partisan gerrymander if ever I've seen one, but to actually, from, uh, from the point of view of judicial logic, which requires a, a, essentially a neutral, reliable test. And also, in judicial, the judicial avenue of reform, precedent is a really big, important piece of how uh, um, legal reasoning carries a reform across the finish line. There's no precedent for evaluating uh, gerrymandering, um, the, or excuse me, for evaluating wasted votes. So the judicial avenue, which seemed promising, and five years ago that seemed like it was going to be the way. The Supreme Court, there were, there were a couple good models. All of those models answered the same uh, way about states like Maryland and, and Wisconsin. Um, but the court was reluctant to do that. You'll see when we look at Baker versus Carr, that part of the reason why the court was unwilling to do this is that there was no precedent, but another part was that this seems like a political question and not a judicial question. Especially traditionally, the state legislatures have handled the question of districting um, and redrawing the maps, and courts are always reluctant to step into a new area of jurisprudence unless it's absolutely necessary. In the case of Baker versus Carr, and there's a good podcast episode about how actually like emotionally traumatic this was for members of the court, um, that to get from not having a jurisprudence to having a jurisprudence about a particular issue of, of reform, and especially political reform, is a pretty major agonizing hurdle. So the judicial avenue, which is normally easier than the statutory avenue, is uh, at the present moment, and I would say for the foreseeable future, is 
unavailable. Um, luckily, the direct democratic route is available. Um, one of the things about this is that it is challenging then. How do you create this, right? What does this look like? Because it's one thing to say. It's ridiculous to let legislators decide on their own legislative or their own electoral map. Let's have an independent districting commission. But then, well, how do we ensure that it's independent? How do we make sure that the people who are on it actually are good enough at drawing maps that the map isn't disastrous? Um, how do we make sure uh, that um, this process of getting on this commission is uh, fair and open, yet also uh, you know, is simple enough that we can write up a ballot measure? That's hard. It's easy to conceptually say, redistricting is a problem in our territory model. It's problematic to hand it to uh, people who are subject to that map. Public pressure is not going to be enough to overcome uh, the self-regulation and get them to uh, re-self-regulate. So, independent district commission. But what does that look like? How do those members get chosen? Now, um, I'm going to wrap up today because uh, one of the things that's great about this particular moment in uh, our history, in, this, in the history of the United States as well as the history of our state, is that we have a, exactly this ballot measure working its way onto the ballot and is likely, though not definitely, likely to get on the ballot in November for Oregon voters to decide how to, uh, whether they want to have an independent district commission or not. Um, and the, this ballot measure has, uh, the people who put it together have gone through all of the challenging work, and you'll hear from uh, the deputy campaign manager who's been involved in a lot of this work and who's been involved in the, the um, coalition building behind getting uh, this ballot measure moving forward, to actually, what does it look like? To make it look, not, to not make it just look and be called independent, but to actually make it function as an independent district commission and not just another version of the bipartisan gerrymander, right? Because if we just put five Democrats and five Republicans on it, it's going to end up being exactly like a state legislature doing it when the state legislature is divided evenly between the two parties. So how do you actually get a truly independent district commission? Um, I myself don't know the answer to that, and I, I, I could and would find out, but I actually have a subject matter expert going to uh, be, who is hopefully pretty soon, either today or tomorrow, recording uh, her guest talk for you, so you can see how to answer this very difficult question. Now, that is, for the point of view of this reform, that is the challenging question to answer. And it's, it's an answerable question, but it's also not a simple question. Once this ballot measure, one, gets written in a way that answers this question with enough detail, two, passes the single-issue test, and three, receives enough signatures and gets on the ballot, it's probably going to win, right? Uh, this particular political reform is very front-end heavy in terms of the work. A lot of reforms, getting it on the ballot is less difficult. It's winning the yes that is going to be the difficult thing. Um, in the case of this one, it seems, I mean, and I've talked to a number of different people with different perspectives on this, it seems like this is going to, you know, just, it'll destroy, it'll, it'll be a total victory if it gets on the ballot. But that process of getting it on the ballot itself is not simple and not automatic. And also making sure, again, I, I know I hit on this a lot, but it's a really important constraint to this avenue of reform, making sure that it survives the single issue challenge. 
Um, because you don't want to put in a ton of work to pursue a political reform that is just going to get overturned by the courts. Uh, and the people who put all that work in the early 90s into term limits and then five years later saw their work overturned, that was, that's, that, that's, that's very frustrating, right? It definitely makes your memory of the victory party uh, when you won that uh, ballot measure, it makes that seem a little bit more sad uh, and, and kind of destroys all that effort. So um, I'm going to wrap up today, but I want to kind of circle back around and, and talk about the fact that a couple of new things, a couple of new ideas I've introduced here, in addition to discussing the subject, are political reform requires a, a public appetite, at least through either the direct democratic or the statutory realm. Through the, through the judicial realm, it doesn't require a public appetite. That's the great thing about it. Certainly for a constitutional amendment, it does. So for three out of four of the avenues, there's, there needs to be a public appetite for that particular kind of reform. And while there might be a desire for all kinds of reform, until that desire reaches a level of appetite, of, of actual hunger, of actual like strength of desire, not just like, oh sure, of course we would like all these things to be better in our political system, until it seems bad enough, um, then you're not going to get that movement. Now, circling back to why is it that it's bad, one reason is that we see examples like Wisconsin where less than 50% of the votes go to the Republican Party and the Republicans control more than 60% of the legislative seats. And we've seen enough examples of that uh, that that gives the public an appetite. The other reason why we have such a strong appetite is that, I've erased it now, but the purpose of gerrymandering, either partisan or bipartisan gerrymandering, both of them, is to create safe seats. One of the things that happens when you get a lot of safe seats is you get people elected who are much more ideologically extreme than when you have competitive seats. Uh, it's a relatively straightforward dynamic. There's a lot of factors that play into that dynamic, but it's, it's, it's pretty clear that when you have a safe seat, you're going to, uh, one, the election, the general election is not the election. The election is the primary. Um, and the primary is going to be fought among people who are in the same party so it's Democrats running against Democrats, Republicans running against Republicans, which is more challenging, honestly, than running a Democrat against a Republican, right? Because if you're a Democrat running against other Democrats, you have so much in common. How do you differentiate yourself? The way that people within a party differentiate themselves is by the strength of their uh, viewpoints, um, the strength of their ideology, where on that particular segment of the political spectrum they fall. So it's usually going to be fought out between extremists in the party and more moderates in the party, um, or between multiple extremists with different characters and personalities. Because the primary becomes the election in safe seat uh, districts, and primaries have a lower turnout rate than uh, general elections, and in some states, and Oregon happens to be one of those states, we have closed primaries where the only people who get to vote are actually registered in that party. So the independents, who would be the moderating voices in a primary election, uh, and are in a general election, they don't get to vote. So we have uh, casual party members don't turn out for primaries, and uh, people who don't belong to a party don't turn out for primaries. So only the most dedicated and usually ideologically extreme members of a party choose their candidates in the primary. Which means that since the primary is the election, you win the primary, you win the general in a safe seat, that pr safe seats produce more ideologically extreme uh, legislators, and they produce people who know that they're the voters that matter most to them when they have to go next time back to the back to an election. 
they know that those voters want them to represent their extreme view with principle and uh, um, sort of uh, uncompromising vigor. Compromise is the four-letter word to that group of people. Not to everybody. In fact, you know, polls show that most Americans wish politicians would compromise more. They want pragmatic systems, uh, pr pragmatic solutions to the problems we face. But most Americans don't determine the primary uh, elections in a safe seat. A small group of people for whom the word compromise is not a good thing, but is a betrayal. Um, and that principle is more important than pragmatism. And these, you know, it's like, it's, those are actually positive human traits, right? Sticking to your principles, that's, that's great. Uh, in politics, though, when you stick to your principles, that means that you're unlikely to work with people with different perspectives and try to get uh, common sense uh, solutions that work for a larger number of people. You're not going to try to build coalitions if your electoral success is based on keeping your more extreme constituency who votes in the primary elections happy. Um, we have seen in the last 20 years a growth in the number of safe seats, We've seen a growth in the number of ideologically extreme uh, candidates winning primaries and getting into Congress and into state legislatures. And what we've also seen at the same time is a declining output of uh, the policymaking process. Um, we've seen uh, a, the status quo orientation of our system become even more mired in uh, obstacles to uh, policy. And we've seen problems go unaddressed. Uh, and what that is doing is that is raising people's awareness of the fact that these types of legislators are the problem. It's not democracy that's the problem. It's a particular type of democracy that hamstrings elected officials from coming up with uh, solutions to, to our pressing problems. And then that's a general dissatisfaction with, the, with you know, uh, a um, do-nothing Congress or a do-nothing state legislature. Um, but uh, it then is connected by political reformers with... Uh, gerrymandering with the fact that there's a lot of safe seats. Competitive seats will promote more moderate, pragmatic, uh, um, compromise-seeking people to run and to win. And what that will do is that will mean that a larger percentage of people who are in, who are in legislatures, both state and uh, national, are going to come to their job with that perspective. Um, now, it does also mean, circling back to what I said earlier, it does mean that if we have lots more competitive seats, that politicians are going to spend more time campaigning. They're going to have to spend more time raising money. And one of the probably unforeseen consequences of uh, success at getting more and more independent district and commissions in place so that the number of competitive seats for state and federal uh, elected officials goes up is that there's going to be even more money in elections. And this is one of the things that you have to know that you're accepting. If you triple the number of competitive seats, you know, there are only really maybe 50 or so competitive House seats in the United States out of 435. Maybe 75, depends on the kind of the year. But let's say that you, uh, that you triple that from 75 to 200 and whatever that is, 210, 200 and something like that, 225. Um, uh, you're still only half of the seats in the House of Representatives are competitive. You're not going to get, because a lot of safe seats are safe, not because of gerrymandering of any kind, but because of political demographics. Um, and because incumbents automatically do have an advantage. And so a safe seat that leans heavily in one direction is going to definitely stay safe uh, for whoever is the incumbent for that for however many years, uh, 20, you know, for 20 years. We're going to have a lot of safe seats no matter what. Um, but if you 
triple the number of competitive seats, that's going to mean there's going to be a lot more competitive races and competitive races require a ton more money. And the people who are running for those seats are therefore going to have to spend more of their two year cycle raising money, getting endorsements, going back to do town meetings. Now, again, as I, as I uh, mentioned last time, part of the problem with safe seats uh, also is that it disconnects you from your constituency because you don't have to go back home to raise money and stay connected to constituents and make sure people are happy. Um, you don't. Uh, you spend more time in Washington, D.C., or you spend more time in Salem away from the people that you represent, and so you become disconnected. Uh, all of this is a, is a way of pointing out that with political reform, there are unintended consequences sometimes. Uh, even if they're known about, they're, they're unintended. But then the consequences often move in both directions. So by getting more competitive seats, by actually creating ballot measures that are going to create real independent district and commissions, and they're going to therefore increase competitiveness and get us closer to what democratic theory tells us is, is true political equality. Fewer wasted votes, fewer people whose votes don't matter, fewer people living in districts where it doesn't matter what they, who they vote for, the safe side is going to win. Um, but that comes with it the potential for way more money in the electoral system, way less time our elected officials can spend on the policymaking process, doing the job that, that elections elect them to do, because they have to keep getting elected again. And if, if that's a harder task, that pulls them away from their job, right? So it's again, it's like if I have to you know, pay for childcare and I have to get a better job to pay more for, for childcare, it's gonna, I'm gonna have to then work even harder and it's kind of a downward cycle because then I'm gonna have to pay more money for childcare. It's a, it's a similar thing. But it also does mean that we have more competitiveness. It also means that we're more likely to have uh, pragmatic, moderate, problem-solving uh, people who are not compromise-averse uh, getting elected, because that's what a, a competitive seat is much more likely to produce that kind of legislator. And so we're going to get people who have less time to govern, but they have a mindset that when they're governing is more uh, inclusive, it's more pragmatic. Um, so when you're thinking about, do we want this or not? It's not just a matter of like, well, this system is stupid and it has these clear flaws, so this is obviously superior. You always have to be evaluating the relative trade-offs and the relative pros and cons. Um, and I, you know, just being aware of what the downsides of a system are and what the unintended consequences or what the potentially negative consequences are uh, is, is, is just a good idea whenever you're advocating for uh, reforms. Because that way, when you have an opponent, you can actually acknowledge, like, yeah, I understand that that's the case, but the, the, the pros far outweigh the cons. Okay, um, that's it for today. Uh, I'm really hopeful that the guest lecture uh, will come in uh, pretty soon. Um, I'm going to say again that uh, a lot of stuff that, is, that I've talked about both today and last time were about winning campaigns. And so uh, if you're in my How to Win a U.S. Political Campaign class already, that's great because you're already seeing that side of it. If not, I'm going to try to remind myself, I'm not going to try, I'm going to remind myself and I'm going to try to follow through this reminder to post links to the material from that campaign class. Uh, for, so for those of you who would like to see, well, what does it take to win a ballot measure? What does it take to get a, a, a reform-minded candidate elected? That's outside the purview of this particular class, PolySci 419. It's in the purview of that other class, so you might be interested in that material anyway. And because of remote instruction, this is one of the benefits, uh, you can watch my lectures, you can listen to them on a podcast, you can hear the guest lecturers from that other class. 
So if I do not follow through on this intention, please, somebody, if anybody's still listening here this close to the end of the lecture, uh, remind me to make that material available to this class. Because even as I'm saying it, I'm just like, I'm probably going to forget, which is terrible, but I'm probably going to forget. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, I will talk to you guys from my dining room next time when the self-quarantine count-up will be nearing 40. All right. Have a great weekend.